So our reading today is from Ephesians 5, verse 1 to 8, in the new, um, what's the new <laughs> version? NIV, NIV. Um, and you'll find it in, usually in the, in the book or in your Bible or in the app. Yeah, it's on the second last page. <clears throat> Ephesians 5, verse 1 to 8. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But among you, there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be uh, obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such as a person is an idolater with empty words. For because of such things, God's wrath comes once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. This is the word of God. Thank you, uh, Magda, for leading us in prayer and reading for us this morning. Uh, we have been, for the last uh, few weeks, quite a few weeks now, a couple months anyway, we've been making our way through this passage that begins in Ephesians 4, right at the beginning of chapter 4, and uh, ends kind of halfway through chapter 5. And uh, we're now coming into the section where Paul addresses... Uh, the issue of human sexuality. Now, all the subjects that we have covered, I think, in the last while, uh, the issue of truth, the issue of our emotions and anger and what to do with it, the issue of money uh, and work, uh, the question of relationships and, and uh, the importance of being gracious toward one another and forgiving toward one another. I think all of these subjects have been very relevant for our current uh, context and for our current cultural moment. Uh, some of you have expressed that to me and to Mark, so that's good to hear. Um, people are finding them, uh, these, these subjects, important and challenging, etc. But if there ever was a subject that was relevant to our current cultural situation, it is this one, the issue of sexuality, human sexuality, uh, gender, etc., all the things that are kind of wrapped up in that together. And so uh, we, we often take questions at the end of, of messages um, when we have time. I'm very committed to making sure we have time for questions this morning because I wouldn't be surprised if there are a bunch. Um, but there's no doubt that this is a very relevant issue in our day and age. I mean, People talk about the 60s, the 1960s, 
as the decade of the cultural revolution and the sexual revolution, right? But really, we have spent the last half century, the last 50 years, in the midst of what you could call a sexual revolution. We've experienced radical, just radical changes in our views surrounding human sexuality and uh, all the things related to it, things like who, who we can have sex with and, and what is sex for, um, what does it mean to be a sexual person, what does sex have to do with gender, uh, is gender something that is fixed or is it something that is now, as a culture anyway, we're believing things that were really inconceivable a hundred years ago. And so it's a very confusing time that we live in, and it's very confusing for Christians to live in this time as well, because things that were fixed in past generations are now no longer fixed, and they're up for grabs. It's a little bit like waking up one day, believing that the sky was blue because it seemed pretty self-evidently blue to you for all your life, and then finally discovering that, no, people uh, believe now that it, it might be purple or it might be green. And you're not sure how to deal with that. You're not sure what to do with that. You're not sure how to, how to interpret that or, or, or how, to, how to live with that. So it is a confusing time. And what we're going to do is we're going to wade into the confusion together. Um, yeah, the last number of weeks, the theme that we've been pounding on, hammering on over and over and over again is this theme of putting off and putting on right? Christians, the Bible says, are expected to leave their old way of life, their old way of being, and put on a new way of life, a new way of being. So, for example, in verse 3, Paul says this, he says, among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or any kind of impurity or of greed, because these are improper for who? For God's holy people. That's the description of a Christian, A follower of Jesus Christ, Paul says, is God's holy person. You know, that's where we get the word saint from. You're saints. If you're a Christian, you're a saint. And you're called to live in a way that reflects that. Because of who you are, Paul says, you're supposed to behave in a way that that is fitting for who you are. That's why, interestingly, he uses this word improper. It It is improper behavior does not create the person. Some of you here probably is about, you know, doing the right things first and foremost, because you hear when we read this passage, you know, he's saying, don't do this, don't do that, don't do that, but he starts the whole thing in verse 3 with but. He says, here's a bunch of negative stuff that you're supposed to put off, and maybe you're thinking, well, listen, it's, a, it's the same old thing I've heard all my life. Christianity is all about a bunch of rules about how you're supposed to live, and it's all about restricting you to behave a certain way, and I, I hate that about religion. Well, we hate that about religion here too. We're called Grace Valley Church. That's a very uh, intentional naming of this church because what makes Christianity unique as a religion is that its foundation is this concept of grace. God sent Jesus to die on the cross for his people to take away their sin 
so that he could call them his holy people. He could call them his children. And he did all of that before he gave any rules about how we're supposed to live and behave as a result of that. See, grace comes first, then comes obedience. If you say obedience comes first, you make the Christian faith all about work, what's called works righteousness. You make it all about what you're supposed to do to please God. And let me tell you again, for the umpteenth time, I have to hear this every week, so I'm assuming you do too, your relationship with God is not determined by your performance. His love for you is not based upon how good a person you are, how careful you are to avoid these things that he describes, sexual immorality, impurity, greed. That's not the basis of your relationship. The basis of your relationship is his profound love for you, so profound that he actually took his perfectly holy and righteous son and allowed him to go to the cross in your place and pay the punishment for your sin. Why? So that you could put off things like sexual immorality, impurity, greed. Why? Because they're improper for who you are. That was not planned. Uh, so now I've got to figure out where we're going in our sermon. Um, it's, it's the biblical act of changing your interpretive grid for how you understand the world and how to live in it. Let me say that again. It is the biblical act of changing the interpretive grid you use for how you understand the world and how you're supposed to live in it. Now, in order to do that, in order to change that interpretive grid, in order to put one grid off and put another grid on, you need to know what the grid is that you're putting off, right? What's the grid that shapes people's beliefs today about things like human sexuality and all the attendant issues that go with it. So what we're going to do today is we're going to do that. This is not, this is not a typical sermon uh, in the sense that typically what we do is we spend a lot of time unpacking uh, the text, the specific verses that we've read in a passage and expounding upon them and explaining them. We're going to do that with this respect to this issue, but we're going to do that next week. So this is kind of like a two-part sermon. It's my way of getting guests to come back. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Um, what we're going to do this morning is we're going to kind of lay the groundwork for looking at what the Bible says about human sexuality as it's explained here and in other places in Scripture. We're going to do that next week. We're going to look this week at the grid, Okay? Because you see, it all boils down to the question of identity. How do we know who we are? And how do we know what we should be as human beings? Uh, there was a different way of answering that question in the past than the way we answer that question today. And it has profound implications for how we understand human sexuality. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at very quick, I always say this very quickly, and then it's never quickly, so I won't do that this time. We're going to look at the root of the interpretive grid. We're going to look at the result of the interpretive grid. We're going to look at the consequences of the, inter of the interpretive grid, and then we're going to look at a response to the interpretive grid. If you like notes, you'll like this sermon. If you like points, there's like 40. So 
Here we go. First of all, the root. Where, where did the way we understand these issues come from? Now, I'm going to give you a very simplified history of philosophy, uh, but hopefully, I think it's still accurate. We've got to go back to the 1700s. Uh, prior to the 1700s in Western culture, and in most cultures, in fact, people believed that all of reality was divided up into two realms. There was the natural realm, and then there was what you could call the moral or ethical realm. So there was the physical realm, okay? Uh, and then there was the, the mental or spiritual realm. Or you could say... Um, there was the phenomenal realm and, the, or sorry, the noumenal realm and the phenomenal realm. For those of you who are in a, a, a philosophy class in university, you'll dig that kind of language. But the idea was, with the, was that these realms existed in a unified system, a unified whole. They were an integrated whole. So we are body and soul. Uh, there are facts and there are values. There's, there's the objective world and the subjective experience of that world, okay? And those things all corresponded to one another. They were integrated with one another. One, one uh, philosopher who doesn't get uh, the due he should uh, from the last century, his name is Francis Schaeffer, he, he described this as a house. And you can picture a house as having two stories. It has a lower story and it has an upper story, okay? And those two stories relate to one another, right? You sleep upstairs. If you have a two-story house, you typically sleep upstairs, and you do your, your cooking and stuff on the main floor, and you go up and down the stairs because these are connected, and they are related to one another, and they make a corresponding whole to one another. And so all of reality, up until about the 1700s, was seen as, yes, this one came, what's called the Enlightenment period. And during the Enlightenment period, a revolution in science, we developed something called the scientific method and whole new ways of understanding the physical world in which we live. But what resulted in that was a belief that more and more uh, reliable knowledge could be found through the scientific method only. Through the observation of the world around us, and through the discoveries we made through science, we could understand things for certain. But things that you couldn't test, like in a lab or, or, or um, in a, uh, through a, a process, those things, you couldn't know them for certain because you couldn't test them, so they weren't as reliable, you see? And that was the stuff of the mind. That was the stuff in the, the upper story of the house. That was ethics. That was values. That was how we know things, okay? You couldn't test them. And so they became very personal only. So in other words, you would have your ethical system. I would have my ethical system. We would understand these things uh, uh, for a variety of reasons. But basically, uh, we could never... Um, we could never claim that those things were all universally applicable. So this unified concept of the universe that the culture had prior to this Enlightenment period, it was exploded. It, it split into these two separate domains so that, so that the upper story and the lower story had less and less to do with one another. You follow what I'm saying so far? You just need a nod. 
says, yeah, I can follow what you're saying. I'm not asking you to agree. I'm just asking you to say you get it. Okay, you get it. Good. All right. The lower story, therefore, became the realm of public universal truth, and the upper story became the private realm, uh, the subjective realm, and the relative realm. Now, over time, this split grew more and more and more and more, and people started taking up camps. So philosophers started saying, well, yeah, you know, we, uh, things like empiricism and rationalism and naturalism and materialism, this is all lower story stuff. This is the stuff we can know for sure. This is true reality. This is what, what really matters. And then there was the, the reaction to that by the romantics who said, no, 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 no. Existentialism and uh, um, uh, idealism, this is the, the area of the mind, the life of the mind, that's what really matters. The, the physical world is not what's most important, it's the, uh, the uh, mental world and the uh, world of values and, and uh, philosophy and ideology, that's what really matters. And as this split began and these camps developed, there came a guy named Immanuel Kant. Some of you have heard of him probably. Immanuel Kant was a, a brilliant philosopher, and he kind of really split things apart because he said, look, if we live in this house called reality that has an upper story and a lower story, and the lower story is the, the, the part that has the physical world and the stuff that we can real, realize through science, he says, how do we access that world? Well, and the answer was we access that world through our senses, right? Through our, our sight, sound, touch, taste, etc. That's how we access it. But, he said, and this is the important thing, he said, the way we make sense of all that information coming to us is through our minds. And our minds exist in the upper story, right? The mind has to interpret all this information and make sense of all this consciousness, the center of reality, because the mind doesn't necessarily conform to the way things are in the physical world. Rather, things in the physical world are interpreted and therefore must conform. Culture has privileged this upper story over the lower story more and more and more and more. So Nietzsche, another pretty famous philosopher who lived in the 1800s, he said, there are no facts, there are only interpretations. So the mind is privileged over the body. The inner self is privileged over the outer self. There's, there's no longer an integrated whole. You know, what inter, you, know, when we, we, you know the word integrity? We think of integrity, someone who has integrity is, the, is a person who you know, is truthful and trustworthy and stuff like that, but actually integrity means, it means whole or undivided. So a person with integrity is a person who is the same in all situations. They're their, their core identity is the same in all, in all situations because they have integrity. But this integrity about reality has been exploded. There's a very brief history of Western thought. What on earth does this have to do with sexuality? Well, point number two, the result. Late modernity, which is the, the time we live in now, we used to call it postmodernism, but now that language has changed. We don't live in a postmodern era anymore. We live in a 
late modern era, and I won't explain to you why that language has changed because it doesn't matter for our purposes. But what it's done is it has taken Kant's divide to its logical conclusion. Because today, our bodies, they do not tell us who we really are. Our bodies, philosophers say, are what's called accidental. That means they're not constitutive, they don't make up who we really are. They're not a fundamental, necessary part of our true self because our bodies are part of the lower story of the house, you see. And what really matters is our mind, the inner self, the heart that exists in the upper story of the house. So in here, okay, the sexed body, meaning our biological makeup and who we are as embodied human beings, has no moral meaning to it. Rather, the mind imposes meaning on the body. You follow what I'm saying? So Camille Paglia, uh, she's a, a current uh, feminist philosopher, she writes this, she says, fate, not God, has given us this flesh. And we have absolute claim to our bodies and may do with them as we see fit. So here's the result, okay, as it, as it relates to identity and as it relates to physicality and sexuality. There are five results, okay, inside. Remember, we've talked a lot about expressive individualism in the last few weeks, or you've heard that term over and over again. Expressive individualism says, and this quote, if you really like it, it's, it's in the engage group section, so don't freak out if you can't write it down now. Um, Jonathan Grant writes this, the authentic self believes that personal meaning must be found within ourselves or at least must resonate with our one-of-a-kind personality. We must be true to ourselves. But that self is the constructed self of the mind, which imposes itself. Thing is, is the real you is the you that you are, that you feel inside. The second thing is, is that you have a moral duty to accept and express this inner self. You have a moral duty to express and ex or accept and express this inner self, because this is how we all get to be fully human. So you can't just say, this is how I am. That's not good enough. You have to actually act on this sense of who you are because that's how you become truly human and fully human. Third thing, third result. Therefore, nobody can tell you who you are or what you should be. It follows that nobody can tell you who you are or what you should be. You see, in past generations okay, our identity was a product of mostly things that we had no control over, okay? Um, so, for example, your nationality or your race had something to do with who you are. Your physical sex made up part of who you are. The family you came from became part of who you are. Uh, your social class had, uh, had something to say about who you were. 
And people basically were expected to make the best out of what they had been given, okay? And conform their lives to that definition of who they are. But today, you discover your true identity within and you can create yourself in any way you see fit. Fourth thing, as a result of this, the body, the physical body, is now a blank canvas on which we paint our true selves. The physical body is now a blank canvas on which we paint our true selves. So we are free to use it in any way we see fit so long as it's expressing our true inner selves because the body itself, our physicality, does not communicate anything to us about who we are. That's a hugely important thing to, to understand. Our bodies are not required to dictate to us something about who we are. We have the freedom to conform our bodies to whatever we want it to be. And obviously, uh, the rise of same-sex relationships, the rise of transgenderism, and also now, increasingly, the rise of what's called transhumanism. Some of you may know what that's about, uh, this idea of of uh, getting beyond the confines of our physicality as human beings. So you have a um, combination of, of, of uh, robotics and human flesh to create beings or people who, um, who, try to, uh, who try to change their physicality to another species, like, like, like reptiles, for example. Maybe some of you are like, I have never heard of any of this. Well, it's out there. And this is why. And then the fifth result is that any attempt to restrict the inner expression of who I am is considered oppressive. Any attempt by anything outside of my inner self to restrict who I am and who I can be is considered oppressive because we're all creating our own reality and therefore no one has the right to restrict someone else's reality. So that's the result. Now the consequences. Even as I'm preaching this, I'm like, this is such a fire hose. Uh, so I apologize. I know Jessica's going to tell me this when we leave. Yeah, you did it again. Sorry. Um, the consequences is, is that in our culture, all right, the self... Is, or identity, I should say, in our culture, identity is self-constructed, okay? And now, that's not all bad, and I want to emphasize that before we get to the consequences. It's not all bad that you have a part to play in deciding who you are, okay? Because, you know, back in the medieval era, you know, if you lived in a certain village in Europe or Africa or South America and you horseshoes, or I think your family and your village and everybody else would say, no, you're a pot maker. That's what you do. That's what we do. And therefore, you must make pots. And you can say, well, fine, I'll get up and I'll leave and I'll go to another village and I'll go make pots there. And they'll say, no, 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 no. That won't work because they know that you're from this village and they have their own pot maker and you're supposed to be part of our pot making community. So like pots. I saw a snicker. I'm like, every time I say pot, is somebody snickering at me. Physical pots, okay? Now, that wasn't all good, right? 
that was overly restrictive. And so this corrective isn't all bad, but, but there are consequences, some pretty significant consequences that we should uh, outline very briefly, and there's five of them. The first one is this. This is a consequ- consequence of a self-constructed identity. One, this leads to the destabilization of identity. Who we are is not fixed. It's always changing. And so we don't have a durable core of who we are that is, is the same in all situations. And that is a very difficult thing to build a life on. This is why you hear stories of uh, people who have been married for 20 years and all of a sudden they say, well, we're breaking up, we're splitting apart, we're not in love with one another anymore. And you say, well, what, what do you mean? What do you mean you're not in love with one another anymore? What do you mean you're breaking up? What do you mean you're splitting apart? And very often people will say things like, well, he changed or I changed, you see. Because identity is becoming so destabilized, you can't trust that a person is going to be the same person at their core today as they will be 20 years from now. Which, by the way, and I can't get into it, has a significant effect on the dropping uh, um, commitment rate among millennials because they're the most self-constructing. Why can you never get a millennial to commit? Sorry, millennials, you get beat up on a lot. Don't worry, Gen Zs, are, they're going to get their turn. In about five years, we're going to hammer on them, and you guys will be the awesomest. But for now, you're, you're the whipping boys, you and the boomers. Us Gen Xers, we get to complain about everybody else. We have no problems. It's all you. But that's why they can't commit, because they have this deep-seated understanding that underneath it all, they have a, a, an identity that is not rooted and and is, is not integrated and is, is changeable. That's the first one. Second of all, because of this, the consequence is that people are exhausted because it's crushing. Because you see, you, all the weight of identification, of finding an identity rests on you. You got to figure it out. You got to decide who you are. You got to achieve your dreams. You got to become all that you can be. And that's a tremendous amount of pressure that people face because it's all on you, because you have to achieve that identity. Third consequence is that it's incoherent. Increasingly, we see that people have incredibly incoherent self-identities because if any of us would just stop for a minute and look deep inside of ourselves, we have to admit we have all kinds of desires. The Bible says that the, that the heart of a man and a woman is deep waters. And if you ever think about yourself, if you ever allow yourself enough quiet time with yourself alone, with no phone or other stimuli around, and you're just left with your thoughts, you start freaking out. Because you're like, I want all kinds of things. I am all kinds of things. And those things are often in conflict with one another, right? I want fatty, look good in my skinny jeans. How in the world am I going to be able to do both? You see. So we have an incoherent identity. Fourth thing is, is that it's actually illusory. Illusory, what do I mean by that? It's an illusion, this idea that we can construct our own identity and be whoever we want to be, and that it's, it all comes from the inside. It's actually a complete illusion. I can say that I am deciding myself who I am, but it's not true. 
every one of us is using an interpretive grid through which we decide what desires we have that we want to express and what desires we have that we don't want to express. The very best, I'm going to give you two illustrations. I'll give you the best one I've ever heard first, and then I'll give you the second one. The best one is from, uh, of course, Tim Keller. He says, imagine a young man during the Anglo, in, in an Anglo-Saxon village in 1200 AD. And this young man is, you know, think Game of Thrones kind of scenario. So this young man is walking through his village, and he has two very powerful desires at work inside of him. The one is to smash things and to smash people. He lives in an honor-shame culture. And in that honor-shame culture, people respect those who show strength. You know, don't diss me kind of thing. So if you look at him funny, he wants to take your, knee, your kneecaps off or maybe even your head off. So he has that desire deep within him and it's strong. And at the same time, he has the desire for same-sex attraction. And it's very strong as well. But because of the culture in which he lives, he knows very well which desire to suppress and which desire to uh, express. Now fast forward a thousand years and the same young man is walking through the streets of New York City. And he has two equally strong and powerful desires going on inside of him. One is the desire to smash anybody who disrespects him, and the other is same-sex desires. And in the one culture, the culture says, of course, express your desire and your aggression to, to smash, because that's who you are, and that's what we respect in our culture. And in the other culture, he is told, you better suppress that, you better go to anger management counseling and deal with your, your anger issues, but of course, in our culture, feel free to express your same-sex desires. Do you see? You see, all of us think we want, but that's not true. We're living in cultures that dictate who we want. The other example is, 200 years ago, a well-educated 21-year-old woman would have two desires going on inside of her. One was to be a homemaker and a mother, and the other one was to be a politician. She thought she could do both, and she could do both excellently. But she couldn't do both because in that culture 200 years ago, a woman wasn't allowed to be a politician. And so she would express the desire to be a homemaker and she would have to suppress the desire to be a politician. Fast forward 200 years, the same 21-year-old, well-educated woman has these same two desires and the culture will tell her, of course you've got to go be a politician. It would be immoral for you to waste all that money that your parents spent on your university education so that they, you could be prepared to be a politician and then just go and be a homemaker. Self-constructed identity is an illusion, friends. And finally, it's excluding. Because it's an identity that has to be achieved, okay, it has to be excluding. There's this place in, in Mere Christianity where C.S. Lewis says, you know, <laughs> we're not really proud of having money. We're proud of having more money than the next guy. We're not really proud of being smart. We're proud of being smarter than the other girl. Because you see, when you're constructing your identity, you have to be better in comparison of others. And be anxious all the time because we're comparing ourselves to other people constantly, constantly. And we're wondering how we measure up. 
Those are the consequences. All right, last point. Is it the last point? Yeah. All of this has to do with human sexuality. What does it have to do with singleness and marriage, attraction, gender uh, identity, and all that kind of stuff? And it will probably be equally convoluted. I apologize. I'm trying my best here to be clear and concise. But today, we have to end with a response. What's the biblical response to these questions? And there's two that I want to share with you. One is the biblical response to the interpretive grid. Remember the grid? The interpretive grid is the upper story is all that matters. The lower story is interpreted by the upper story, and so we create our own reality. Physical, it's almost, it's almost like the Greeks and the Gnostics who said the physical was bad and the the uh, immaterial was good. The biblical response to that is the earliest world was made good. And because it was made good, it was made valuable. God created all the physical world good, including our bodies. You know, God could have made us angels, like the angels, right? Spirits with no physical bodies. But in Genesis 1.27, he said, it says, God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. We are embodied image bearers of God. He created his image, male and female. He, he created our physicality, including our biological sex. He, he built that into the, the world that he made that was good. And so all throughout Scripture, what's so interesting is that, that, that the Bible, over and over and over again, it treats this upper story and this lower story as an integrated whole. One example, Psalm 63, verse 1. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh yearns for you. And you find that all over the Bible. We, you know, the promise of the gospel, eh? The amazing promise of the gospel is, is that the physical world and your physical body will be redeemed. There's no other worldview out there like it. In fact, Christianity, you could say, is the most body-positive worldview out there right now because it says our physical bodies are such an important part of us that, that when we get to the end of history, when Jesus returns and he finally inaugurates his kingdom, we won't be there just flitting around with, with little wings like angels on the clouds like in the old Philadelphia cream cheese commercials. We will be embodied. It will be you and it will be me. And I will look awesome in my skinny jeans no matter how much fatty food I eat. The gospel is body positive, and therefore, our physical sexed selves are to be honored and listened to with respect to our identity formation. They have an important role to play in us understanding who we are. And secondly, to the question of identity, this is, this is the most beautiful part, and this is why we're ending here. The gospel offers each of us an identity that is received, not achieved. Listen to that again. 
The gospel gives you an identity that is received, not achieved. Do you notice, and now we're finally getting back to the text. You notice in verse 1, Paul says, Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children. And then in verse 8, he says, For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. You know, if there's any category of perceived and not achieved, it's a child. My kids are a child of Paul and Jessica. They can hate it that they are, but it doesn't change the fact that they are. It was given to them. And you see, when it's given to you, it's stable because it's not based on your performance. It's not based upon your achievement. It's something that you have. Look, I heard one preacher say, you know, we all need the esteem of someone we esteem in order to have self-esteem. We all need the esteem of someone we esteem in order to have self-esteem. You cannot just say, I'm awesome, I'm smart enough, I'm whatever enough, and doggone it, people like me. You can't live the Stuart Smalley life. You all know that that's not true. There's got to be someone out there whose opinion of you matters more than anything else because you screw up all your life. You do things wrong against other people, people that you love deeply, and sometimes you screw up so badly against people that you love very, very deeply that they are done with you. And so you were husband, you were father, you were friend, you were employer, you were employee, but you cannot be anymore because that relationship has been ruined here on this earth. And if your identity is rooted in that, I'm father, I'm husband, I'm wife, I'm friend, I'm neighbor, I'm athletic, I'm brilliant engineer, I'm amazing musician, I'm whatever. If you're rooted in that and it gets taken away from you, you are completely lost. You don't know who you are anymore. And you despair and people take their lives over this kind of thing. Because they are so ripped from who they were that they no longer have anything solid to put their life on anymore. And yet the gospel is, John 1 verse 12, to those who received him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to be called children of God. Your identity, friends, is like a deck of cards, you know? Because you are all these things I just rattled off. I'm a Vandenbrink. I'm a pastor. I'm a dad. I'm a white guy. I'm a middle-aged. I'm all this stuff. And you know, you're, 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 it's like a deck of cards, so they're all stacked up in there, and somewhere in there I am also a child of God. And so much of my life and so much of your life is forgetting that you're a child of God and focusing on that other card in the deck. What do we need to do? We need to take that card out and put it on top. And the way you do that, friends, is by looking at the beauty of the gospel again. Look at Jesus dying for you. Look at Jesus taking your penalty for your sin on himself. Look at him 
calling you his brothers and sisters, delighting in you, without demanding anything from you. Root your identity in him. Let's pray. Father, these are heady things. I pray that they're understandable to some degree. <laughs> uh, Father, help us to put off the interpretive grid that says we have to discover our own a comforter <laughs> that, that warms us, that protects us, that sustains us. Do this, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.